Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. On the line with us is the director and producer of a brand new movie about Donald Trump. It's titled Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump. The website is unfitfilm.com. Dan Partland is the director and producer, and he's on the line with us. Dan, welcome to the program. Tell us about the movie. Thank you for having me on, Tom. The movie was really born out of something that I think everybody saw right uh, in the early days of the Trump campaign in 2016, in the early days of the presidency, which is... It was such a divided way in terms of how the public saw it. Some people saw immediately a strong, charismatic leader, confident, and some people saw a guy who was weak and insecure and a bundle of nerves all the time and anxiety. And I just thought that was really interesting and tried to get some insight into what the mental health community sees in his behavior. And what did you learn? (laughs) Well... You know, what I learned is that there was this feeling I had throughout the coverage of the Trump presidency that there was something missing in the coverage, that there was something that wasn't being said. It was it was unsatisfying. Every week there was a new scandal and very little insight connecting because there was an obvious sameness to these scandals, but nobody seemed to be talking about it. And what I found out is that there's a reason why nobody's talking about it, is that it's a psychological phenomenon, it's Trump's psychology that unifies these theories, and that the mental health community was, in fact, gagged, muzzled from talking about it in the run-up to the 2016 campaign. Does Trump's psychology, in the opinion of the mental health professionals that you interviewed and you know what you put together in this film, we're talking to Dan Partland, he's got a new movie out, it's, it's out next week, September 1st. It's titled Unfit, The Psychology of Donald Trump, the website unfitfilm.com. How is Donald Trump's psychology consequentially different from that of Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Richard Nixon, the Republicans who preceded him, who have basically pursued the exact policies, you know, sell off public lands, kneecap the EPA, cut back on enforcement by the IRS, promote militarism and violent policing, stigmatize and, you know, freak out about people of color, etc. I mean, I can't think of any Trump policies specifically that aren't broadly in line with historic republic, you know, outside of his rhetoric against so-called free trade, 
But his actions really have just, you know, I mean, he hasn't done anything consequential. How is he different than the other Republicans? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So the mental health professionals, I'll give a broader context for the film, but the mental health professionals in the film speak openly about potential diagnoses that you could see in Trump, and they explain how they arrive at that behavior, at those diagnoses, which is basically from observing behavior. So the reason they were gagged in the run-up to the 2016 election that I referred to is that the APA, American Psychiatric Association, has a longstanding rule, ethical rule, guideline called the Goldwater Rule, which came out of an incident that happened in the 1964 campaign when mental health professionals were commenting quite recklessly about the mental stability of Barry Goldwater. Turns out Goldwater was stable and that the comments were really irresponsible. They were being made without appropriate knowledge of Goldwater. They violated the ethics of the day. They speculated a lot about his inner life that you really couldn't know without having seen him in a clinical setting. The diagnostic criteria that mental health professionals use in the film are really based on observable behavior. And that's really how we make behavioral diagnoses. And the diagnosis that is explored in the film is called malignant narcissism. It's a very, very serious diagnosis that it's more of a syndrome that comprises four separate diagnoses. And when they work together, there's really quite a devastating effect. It's a diagnosis that really came out of the post-World War II era and legendary psychiatrist Eric Fromm and his effort to try to understand Hitler. So the phenomenon of or the syndrome of malignant narcissism is really comprised of four main elements, which is narcissism, paranoia, antisocial personality disorder, and sadism. And the different psychologists and psychiatrists in the film walk you through how those four diagnoses really work together to become quite a powerful constellation of traits that really prohibit someone with a diagnosis that's really incapable of thinking about people outside of what it is they can do for them. I think there's a brutality to Trump is on display every day. It comes from the lack of empathy, which is part of an antisocial personality disorder, the paranoia, the narcissism, and obviously there's a cruelty that I think we've seen on display that qualifies as sadism. Yeah, I totally get it. We're talking with Dan Partland, the director and producer of this new film about the psychology of Donald Trump. It's titled Unfit. Unfitfilm.com is the website. You can find all the information. And uh, duty to warn, number two, is the Twitter handle. And Dan, why duty to warn? So while the Goldwater Rule, on the one hand, prohibits mental health professionals from talking about, from politicizing mental health diagnoses, the counterbalancing ethical guideline also by the APA is called the Tarasoff Rule. And that enshrines the, the duty to warn, which is that if a mental health professional has knowledge of imminent danger that they see, it's their duty and this has been enshrined in law as well, not just the trade association, professional association. It is their responsibility under law to speak up. So you have these two countervailing ethical guidelines, and the psychologists and psychiatrists in the film believe that the duty to warn is much more important than the Goldwater guideline, which is misapplied here. 
Right, because the Goldwater guideline is basically, let's not sully our, the reputation of our industry, essentially, or of our practice, whereas duty to warn is, let's save lives. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the Goldwater yeah. rule is somewhat antiquated. It really, the intention was good to keep from politicizing mental health. I think that's really, really important. But yeah. it doesn't really apply in this instance. So, Dan, how can people see the movie? Uh, we're talking uh, with the director and producer of Unfit, the new movie about the psychology of da- Donald Trump, unfitfilm.com. It will be streaming and on-demand services. Every cable company and every streamer in the, in, uh, the country should have it on demand September 1st. Wow, that's cool. Okay, the movie is Unfit, the psychology of Donald Trump. Dan Partland is the producer and director. Dan, I wish you the very best with it. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Uh, Good talking with you. This is, uh, you know, wake up America, right? You've got a mentally ill person in the White House. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. Stick around. So we've got a video up over at TomHartman.com, and this is about just a totally bizarre story about these three guys with no VA experience, uh, not even veterans, who are all big shots down at Mar-a-Lago that Donald Trump has put in charge of the Veterans Administration functionally. And their association, one of them is the head of Marvel Entertainment, their association with Johnson & Johnson and the New York Stock Exchange, and Johnson & Johnson, the big drug company, taking this very, very cheap chemical ketamine, tweaking the molecule a little bit, and rolling it out as a new anti-suicide drug, Spravato, that in clinical trials caused six people to die, three of them by suicide, and none of the people taking the placebo to die. And now Trump is telling the VA, you have to buy this highly inflated price drug from Johnson & Johnson, and the Democrats want to know what's up with the VA crowd guys. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. And Len in Silva, North Carolina. Hey, Len, what's on your mind today? Hey there. I was wondering if anybody else had thought that that speech by Trump looked like a, a carnival barker. By Don Jr.? Yeah. First of all, I, I continue to think that he was squinting and his eyes were having trouble because he was having a hard time reading the prompter because he's wearing contacts. He's <laughs> at that age where, you know, where presbyopia starts to kick in. But it seemed to me like he was frightened. I think that he is looking at the very real possibility of spending the rest of his life in prison. You know, the, the I, I cons. Think, I and, think that's good. And, yeah, I do, too. But, but I think he, he understands if he can't get people to vote for his daddy, he's going to go to jail. And, you know, he's yeah. not enthusiastic about that, well, you know, and for, I obviously for good un- reason. Also can't understand how they can spew out these numbers that, you know, this is, we've done this so well that we've only killed off 177,000 people. I, you know, <laughs> it's yeah. like you said yesterday when you were talking about the, the guy with the airplanes, Riding on on an airplane that was going oh, yeah. to crash. 
Yeah, it's no big deal. It's no, it's no problem. You know, I, I remember back in the, I think it was the 80s, maybe the early 90s, when that uh, DC-10 or the L-1011 went down in Florida, and then a, and then a DC-10 went down in Chicago where the wing, you know, the engine fell off the wing, and nobody would yeah. fly three engine airplanes. Uh, you know, they ended yeah. up retiring both those airplanes, the DC-10 and the L-1011, although FedEx is still flying them as cargo planes. But, no, you know, nobody would get on one. And that was two crashes in one year, as I recall, or, you know, in close, yeah, relatively and, close proximity and, and to each other. And the thing is, I really believe that as long as all of us go out and vote like we're supposed to, we're going to get this bozo out of office. Yeah, assuming our votes get counted. I mean, this is the, the thing that keeps me up at night is, is Joseph yeah. Stalin saying to his secretary, I don't care who votes. What I care about is who counts the votes. That's what matters. And, yeah. you know, and that's what Trump, I believe, is, is counting on. Uh, well, Len, thanks a lot for the call. I got to move along here. Virginia in Seattle. Hey, Virginia, what's up? Hi, I agree with you on the counting votes thing. He's really counting on that. But I watched the RNC last night. What became really clear to me is that they're obviously going to use huge fear things to get these people that he's not sure about to vote for him. And I think that yeah. if the Democratic people keep saying, oh, we're so nice and we're going to make things really sweet, it's not going to work. I think what we have to do, and even on television and us at home and everybody, is to talk about how awful it is now <laughs> that we're having all these... But the loss of democracy, that. Virginia, to most people is an abstraction compared with the Republicans' message <laughs> that black people are coming to burn your home. That's true. That's true. We have to deal with that, too. But. Yeah, I mean, this is, this, I think this is the biggest challenge. The Democrats are talking about something that is, I mean, there's, there's real world consequences and we can identify them and all that kind of thing. But, but by and large, it's more abstract. And the Republicans and, and, you know, Reagan and Nixon did this very, very well, are basically explicitly saying, look out, white people, black people are coming for you. And I don't know any kind of Democratic message that's that scary. Virginia, thank you for the call. Just a heads up that I'm doing book events. You know, normally when I show up in a town, you know, to do a book signing, the way that you hear what I have to say is by showing up at the bookstore. Well, you know, these are different times. And, you know, it used to be if you didn't live in that town, you couldn't even get to the bookstore. We are doing virtual events, live virtual events in Seattle with Seattle Town Hall. Again, a live virtual event. That'll be Friday, September 4th. So just a heads up on that. Ralph Nader wrote of this new book. It's called The Hidden History of Monopolies, How Big Business Destroyed the American Dream. He said, this is the most important dynamic book on the cancers of monopoly by giant corporations written in our generation. Tom Hartman here with you. There is a uh, Miles Taylor. He testified about this last week. But this is a, a brand new story. Just came out over at the Daily Beast. Rick Wilson and Mary Jong Fask writing about this, and it is that Taylor has expanded on this. He he was the guy who told us that there were meetings of Trump's cabinet where Trump came in and said, basically, tear the immigrant kids, the children of the families who are seeking refugee status, tear them away from their parents. The rationalization for this, John Kelly actually said this out loud, that the rationalization for it is that if families south of the border learn that if they come here, their children will be in hell. 
Their children will be thrown into jails. Their children will be put in cages. Their children could be sold into child trafficking networks. If they know that, now Kelly didn't use the example of sold into child trafficking networks, but we've got over a thousand of these children who are missing right now. We have no idea where they are. The Trump administration, at the same time that QAnon is talking about, you know, Democrats being, you know, pedophiles who drink the blood of children and stuff. The Republican administration has actually been shoveling these kids out the door. We don't know to whom. Maybe somebody running a child racket out of Mar-a-Lago. We don't know. But anyhow, this guy, uh, Miles Taylor, who was the chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security, the chief of staff has expanded on what he originally said. He said, Trump proposed, quote, sickening, end quote, medieval punishments to, quote, pierce the flesh of migrants who cross the border, rip immigrant families apart, quote, maim or gas them. Gas them? Does he mean like with Zyklon B? Or is he talking about tear gas? I don't know. Taylor said he dutifully took notes of the president's cruel and volatile suggestions. He said, and I quote, this is from the former chief of staff of the Department of Homeland Security. Quote, this is a man with no humanity whatsoever. He says, we got to do this, this, and this, all of which are probably impossible, illegal, unethical. He looks over at me and he goes, you effing taking notes? And then even on top of that, Taylor says the president couldn't go through a meeting, quote, without him doing 20 tangents, becoming irascible, turning red in the face, demanding a Diet Coke, spewing spit. Taylor said, literally out of G-damn nowhere, he'd be like, you know who's just my favorite guy? That my pillow guy. Do you have any of those pillows? It must be a real challenge to work in this White House with this man, with Donald Trump. I mean, this is... This is uh, over the top, shall we say. Anyhow, Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I have a real issue with the Republican Party trotting out black people, I guess, for uh, for decoration. Yes, and Herschel Walker also. Tom, by no means, as black people, we're not monolithic in our thinking or our political persuasion. But what we know is this, that... The Democratic Party, um, and I don't always agree with them, but certainly if we want to move them in a progressive direction, we're able to do that with the party. Right now, Trump is representing the party of hate. And it was really just frustrating and disgusting to see the presentation of the speakers and offering nothing. So here's what we leave them with. As they told the Obama supporters, remember, Tom, they told us we were drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm just going to ask the Trump supporters, stop drinking the bleach. Stop drinking the disinfectant. (laughs) So uh, you feel free to use it. Hey, North Texas is asking them that, Pam. They got 60 people up there, or 50 some odd people who've been drinking bleach, and they're begging them to stop because it's killing them. So I'm just simply saying, stop drinking the bleach. And so we're organizing, and we're going to just get out the boat. And, and as I said, Tom, the Democratic Party is not perfect, but we can push them in a direction where we want to go. And I'm ecstatic about Senator Harris. 
and I want to see her as VP. Me too. And I'm guessing, you know, in our lifetimes, Pam, God willing, we might see her as president as well four years down the road or maybe eight years. I don't know. Joe Biden has said he might run for reelection, but I'm not believing it. And we've got to get out there and vote, Tom. So uh, check your registration, plan to vote, do it early. I know people, Tom, including uh, elders in my family, if they have to go out in person and vote, they will, Tom. They'll double mask up. And protect yep. Our parents' generation, Pam, volunteered to fight fascists in Europe knowing they could die. I'm not suggesting that people should, you know, take unnecessary risk, but, you know, it, it would be a real challenge. But I think that, you know, we, there are a lot of people signing up for this. Pam, thank you You're very much. listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with your calls after this. What are your thoughts having watched, if you watched the RNC last night, or just, you know, if you've read about it, where do you think this is going? Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. 
Our book today is by Catherine Bailey. It's a castle in wartime. One family, their missing sons, and the fight to defeat the Nazis. It's an extraordinary and fascinating book. This is from the prologue. Uh, Dateline Innsbruck, Austria, 16 December 1944. Monica calling steamboat. This cryptic announcement broadcast to Austria over the Voice of America was received with relief by a handful of people able to decipher it. The coded message signaled that the Allies were still trying to infiltrate agents into Innsbruck to make contact with members of the Austrian resistance. It was 7 o'clock on a winter's morning, the gray old city walled in by snow-covered mountains. A roof of dense cloud hung over the domes and spires, cutting out the sky and the summit of the Nordkette. Towering 7,000 feet above the city, the sheer face of the mountain rose like a wall, blocking the north end of the fine Baroque streets. The illusion of being confined in a small space was maintained in the alleys and passageways in the medieval quarter. On a chill, gloomy day such as this, passing the tall, narrow-fronted Gothic houses, the sensation of, was of walking along the bottom of a ravine. Thick wreaths of smoke spiraled beneath the clouds. The day before, American planes had bombed the city, killing 259 people. In Herzog Friedrichstrasse, a protective shroud covered the famous golden roof of the balcony designed for Emperor Maximilian in 1500. Beneath the bombed-out buildings, parties of children, drafted in from the villages along the valley, worked to clear the rubble. They were watched by small groups of SS soldiers who stood on the street corners guarding the defusing crews. Forcibly re recruited from the nearby concentration camp at Reichenau, it was their job to deactivate the bombs that had failed to explode. The Allies were now convinced that Innsbruck, rather than the Reich capital of Berlin, was where the war was likely to culminate. Recent intelligence reports indicated that Hitler was building an Apfelfestung, an Alpine fortress, in the mountains that encircled the city. Blueprints attained by OSS operatives, the OSS is the forerunner of the CIA, point to a chain of underground factories and armories. It was to this remote, impregnable fortress that Hitler and a coterie of his most fanatical supporters intended to retreat when the Wehrmacht was beaten. From here, they would carry on the fight, defended by elite SS troops and sustained by huge stores of supplies that had been carefully stockpiled in bomb-proof caves. With Hitler holding the high ground, Allied military commanders were predicting that the battle to take the fortress could extend the war by up to two years and exact more casualties than all of the previous fighting on the Western Front. In these circumstances, intelligence from Innsbruck, the capital of the Apfelfestung, was suddenly at a premium. Alan Dulles, the OSS station chief in Switzerland, hoped to recruit a network of agents from within the city. Their job would be to supply hard military intelligence and assist the passage of U.S. and British forces when they reached the western border of Austria. But as Dulles recognized, Innsbruck was not fertile ground. That autumn, the Gestapo had arrested all known anti-Nazis. Moving from house to house, the mopping up operations signaled their determination to suppress all resistance operations in an area they looked upon as their last bastion. Soon after midday on 16 December, the U.S. Air Force returned to bomb the city for the fourth time that month. A sharp left rally was executed immediately. After bombs away and a course flown around Innsbruck, the pilot reported, due to undercast, no visual observation of results were possible. 
Some hours later, Frau Muttenschuldner, a resident of 47 years, sat down to write in her diary. It is a black day for Innsbruck, she began. The old city center has been hit as well as the graveyard. Everyone feared there would be another raid, and sure enough, the enemy bombers came and wreaked their evil. There was no gas or water in the city, and the cemetery was now closed for burials. In the flat, dingy light, the only color was from the fires that had yet to be put out. Fraulein Kummer's photo studio is on fire, Frau Muttenschuller reported. Vargar's paper warehouse, the stained glass factory at Müllerstrasse, Café Paul in Maximilianstrasse, and Hollensteiner's Gasthaus are all burning. Showers of sparks and burning paper are falling from the warehouse. One would marvel at the eerie beauty of it if it were not such a sad occasion. The raid marked a change of tactic. In addition to dropping 200 tons of bombs, the U.S. planes had dropped thousands of propaganda leaflets. In the coming weeks, they would drop thousands more. These, and the messages broadcast on the BBC's Austrian service, urged the city's inhabitants to rise up and prevent Hitler from making a last stand in the Tyrol. Tyrolians, we know that you will not permit it. You will see to it that none of the Nazi leaders can hide. We know that already Tyrolians are fighting the Nazis everywhere. Even if the Nazis still feel secure in your country, we know better. You are on our side. But the vast majority of Tyrolians were not on the Allies' side. The Book of Castle in wartime. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Len in Woodmere, New York. Hey, Len, what's on your mind today? Hi. The way to talk about Donald Trump, when everybody asks uh, why is his numbers still high about the economy, you know, the answer is, number one, he keeps talking enough to make some people believe it. But the other way would be the other way that would be beautiful uh, in uh, a debate, Biden, you know, could respond, you know, you can look at talk about this in a way that even Donald Trump will understand it. Imagine Barack Obama stepping up to the tee in 2009 on the economy, taking a swing, and the ball goes sailing and continues sailing and sailing for eight years. And then in 2016, he has to step down, and Donald Trump now steps up to the tee and just points to the ball and says, look what I did. Basically, he didn't do anything. All he did was come along afterwards and start claiming credit from day one. And yeah, I think yeah, I, you can make a strong case that Obama initiated the, the longest economic expansion in the history of the United States. I would suggest that that wasn't necessarily due to Obama's brilliance. It was due to the fact that it was one of the deepest downturns. And so, you know, recovering from that and just getting back to normal is what took the first four years. And then the next, you know, five, six years, you know, that extended into Trump's presidency were, were actually the effects of the stimulus. But but your, your point is really well taken, Len. You know, and every time Trump brags about the economy, we need to add that he inherited from Barack Obama. And just like everything else he's inherited in his whole entire life, he pissed it away. He ruined it. And one other little point, when you get your early mail-in ballot or something you can deliver, send it from a Republican area if you can drive 10, 15 minutes, and it'll even make it there more likely. There you go.
I, I'm not sure about that, Len, but, uh, you know, vote early. That's the bottom line. Len, thanks for the call. Donna in Bonnie Lake, Washington. Hey, Donna, thanks for listening on the Tom Hartman app. What's up? Yeah, good morning. So I retired from driving a postal truck out of the Seattle area in 15. And, you know, we delivered the mail to the postal facilities and then uh, brought the mail back to the processing plant. And one thing I haven't heard is, you know, traffic delays the mail as well. And I'll tell you, in Seattle, that can be considerable at times. And they would also, in the morning dispatches, which are at 4.30 and 6.30 in the morning, they regularly would hold us up about 10 or 15 minutes to get the last of the equipment on the trucks. And to me, that always seemed, you know, reasonable, like the right thing to do. Yeah, and that's what DeJoy put an end to. He said, you can't wait for the rest of the mail. You've got to leave the rest of the mail on the floor and pull the truck out. And as a result, we've got reports all over the country of trucks pulling out empty, going on 500 mile round trips, empty, because DeJoy said, you've got to leave at 5 a.m. whether the truck is loaded or not. Yeah, I don't right, trust Donna? him, and I hope the Democrats are hard on him. And the conflict of yeah. interest as well is just wrong. Oh, I am with you. Holding stock options and Amazon and having you know stock in his own company, it's, it's insane. Donna, thank you for the call, and thanks for your insight as a former postal worker. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. NetSuite.com slash Hartman. That's NetSuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard... We think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. 
Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Daily rants and weekly op-eds at HartmanReport.com. It's free and there's no ads. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you reading this uh, very, very sad and bizarre story of uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. and his wife and their pool boy. One of the interesting things, they say in May of 2015, uh, Falwell offered to buy out the pool boy. He had set him up with a business in Florida, a youth hostel or something like that. And you know, a lot of us thought for some time there that Falwell was the one having the affair with the pool boy. It turns out it was Falwell's wife and that Falwell, well, the headline, this is so sad over at Raw Story, my husband likes to watch and he's wearing a Speedo. It was the text message apparently to the pool boy from the wife. But the thing that I think is, you know, makes this news rather than just being salacious, um, I'm not a big fan of just, you know, ranting about people's sex lives. And I think, you know, the Clinton mess kind of proved to all of us that people's sex lives should really be their own business. But in 2015, in May of 2015, Falwell tried to buy out the pool boy and basically get him out of his life. And it turns out that this was because Donald Trump had just announced that he was running for president and Falwell thought he'd play a big role in that administration. Granda said, quote, Jerry Falwell Jr. admired Trump's strongman public persona. There was a noticeable personality change after Trump was elected. Falwell was drunk on power and felt like he could get away with anything. In fact, Falwell became close to Trump, even being offered the position of education secretary, although Betsy DeVos got the job. Strange stuff. Sad stuff. I'm deeply saddened by that. Regine in Ellenville, New York. Hey, Regine, what's up? What's on your mind today? Um, I'm calling today because I believe that um, what the Republican Party is doing right now, this is the last throes of white supremacy, patriarchy, the whole thing, the oligarchy. It's all falling down. And that's what's going on now. They're desperate to hold on to their power. And it's all there. That's why they're gaslighting everybody, because white supremacy is going down. What do you think, Tom? I think you're right, Regine. And in that context, I think you could characterize what is happening, assuming, you know, there's a giant if here, and that is if they lose as the beginning of the end, basically. You know, the lie of Reaganism has been revealed. You've got even Republicans writing books like It Was All a Lie and The Grifters Club, things like that. So this could be the last... You know, I don't think white supremacy is ever going to go away, but this could be the last gasp of white supremacy being the pivot point or the lever that politicians can use to acquire and hold political power. And that would be a good thing if this is the last gasp of it. And, you know, the protests against the shooting of Jacob Blake, for example, another example. What do you think, Regine? I think so. And I also think that the people of America, they talk about the silent majority. 
and we're now the silent majority. Those of us who see what's going on, and you know, and these right wingers and these hate-filled, violent people that the president puts up as true patriots. I think everybody's seeing the falsehood of that, and I think the only thing that's going to save us is if. The people that are related to these people in power and these people that are violent and think that the only way to own the libs is to threaten violence, they don't realize they're being owned. And I think the people of America now have woken up. The only thing is that we now have to have the courage to stand up to these people when they see them. And I really, uh, I, I told all my friends, you know, when you have that racist uncle at Thanksgiving dinner, you need to call him out on it because that's what I've done all my life. I mean, it didn't make me a lot of friends. But at least people know where you stand. And I think once this is no longer accepted in the family, that's the only way we get rid of it. That's the only way we get rid of this idea that the rich should have everything and the poor should have nothing. And that we continue to, you know, penalize people for being poor. And we need to stop that. And once people know the reason well why said. people are poor. <laughs> the reasons why people are poor. Yeah, oh, amen. I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I completely agree. And I think that this may well be a turning point. And if so, it's a good thing, frankly, that Trump has come out and he was just like too dumb to keep talking in code like, you know, Nixon and Reagan and both <laughs> Bushes did. Well, they don't um, care anymore. And, arrogance and, has you made know, them, you know, arrogance and hubris is going to be what yeah. brings them down. Their arrogance. Look at, look at the Falwell kid. You know, all that power, all that privilege, yep. one in that family, all that stuff. And he's still turns out to be just a regular human being. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's just a regular yep, guy yep, who likes to do yep. kinky stuff with his wife. So what? You know, they're just people. We need yeah, to exactly. People. Except, that he, except that he's running a university, except that he's running a university where that explicitly, you know, says gay people are not welcome here, you know, or anybody on that spectrum, you know, the, the whole LGBTQ. And you know, he's, he has made a living basically being a bigot, and here he is. He's, he's flawed, yeah. Regine, thank you. Thank you. i got to move along, but uh, thank you for uh, your, th- your thoughts. Steve in Palmdale, California. Hey, Steve, what's up? Hi, Tom. I'm uh, going to change the subject. I watched the congressional hearing with Postmaster DeJoy and the chairman of the Postal Board of Governors, Duncan. These are both top-level GOP party leaders. Now, under questioning by Congressman Ruta, DeJoy went out of his way to correct Ruta's impression that he was against the insane retiree health care prefunding mandate. He says he is totally in favor of it. And that clearly identifies him as somebody whose intent is to sabotage the Postal Service. Right. Right. Yeah. Set it up for privatization. And why would you go to a billionaire who just sold for almost $700 million a logistics company that has a contract with the post office? I think DeJoy might have been given a deal. You know, we'll cut you in on the privatization. You'll become a multi-billionaire. It's one of the few things that makes sense to me in the context of all this. Tom, part of their explanation for the taking away of the sorting machines and the collection boxes is these were ongoing programs. I think Congress needs to talk to ex-Postmaster General Brennan and the former Deputy Board of Governors Williams, who just left the Board of Governors this year. He has a background in public service, including the Postal Inspector's General Office. Those are people who can tell us straight out whether DeJoy and Duncan are telling the truth about whether this is normal and planned behavior to take away the sorting machines and collection boxes. Yeah. Oh, man, we're, we're not getting straight answers from this guy. Steve, thank you for the call. Doug in Denver. Hey, Doug, what's up? I wanted to thank you for pointing out that Roger Stone mm-hmm. is running the Nixon playbook. 
And I think the media and the Lincoln Project ought to take advantage of that and show all the rioting and all the problems that are going on right now, and it's only going to get worse in the next four years if Trump remains president. Look what's happening with Trump as president. He's been in office for four years, and look how bad it's gotten. Yeah. Turn it around. Turn the tables on him. Yeah, that's, that's one way to characterize it. He's going out of his way to provoke this kind of stuff. That's right. And it's going to get worse. And that's how we need yep. to scare all the grandmas and scare all the suburban moms. Say, if you reelect this guy, it's going to get even worse. So anyway, thank you. Yeah, Enjoy I'm not sure show. scaring is the best political strategy, but I get what you're saying, Doug. Ozzy in Quail Valley, California. Hey, Ozzy, what's on your mind today? Hey, uh, Tom. I'm concerned uh, that I'm not hearing enough conversation on the sociopathic uh, problems that Trump has. And what are we going to do to prevent this from happening in the future? It's a good question. I think that, you know, once burned, twice shy. I mean, you know, we we now have an understanding of how important it is to take demagogues at their word. But Trump has created a, a new front, as it were, in American politics that had always been very, very small and very marginalized, even in the 30s when Lindbergh, when Charles Lindbergh was leading the crusade, you know, to back Hitler. You know, he's a good guy, right? And there's a great movie about that on HBO, by the way. But, you know, I don't know. I don't I have, there's screened. not a simple answer. I think the, the simple answer is they should be screened and vetted like everybody else is getting. Well, that's what elections are supposed to do, Ozzy. I mean, here's the problem. Well, it if, if, if you were to pass a law, now let me just finish here. If you were to pass a law today that said that anybody who wants to run for president of the United States has to submit to a, a psychological profile, and that's the law, that would be administered by the executive branch of our federal government, which means that Joe Biden would have to take a psychological test administered by somebody appointed by Donald Trump. How do you think that test would turn out? Well, he's already elected at that point. <laughs> I think he's already elected. No, but Biden's not. He's the he's the candidate. But, you know, my point Biden is that will be elected that's that the kind point. of thing that could be used uh, for for partisan gain. And that's that's my concern. And, and, and I don't our, want the federal government to have that kind of power. Well, I just hate for this to happen again. And it will. Someday. Me, too. I think, I, you know, because if you want to put the blame someplace, I put it with the media. I put it with, you know, uh, Joe Scarborough's show that had Donald Trump on day after day after day, month after month after month, Fox so-called news and Rupert Murdoch, the president of CBS, Les Moonves, saying, you know, Donald Trump may be terrible for America, but he's making money for CBS. Keep it going, Donald. I mean, these guys brought Donald Trump into our living rooms day after day after day. They didn't push back on the crazy part of his message. They amplified some of the parts of his message that were patently BS, you know, where he was just lying to us. He's going to bring back the jobs. He's going to make America great again, all this kind of stuff. And here we are. And it's because there were a bunch of executives in a bunch of corporate boardrooms who ran media companies who wanted to make more money off selling more advertising by getting more eyeballs by putting a freak show on TV. Frankly, I think that's where we should be focusing our attention. And I think Brian Stelter's new book, Hoax, speaks to this in a way that is pretty important to understand. But I don't think that we can test our way out of this, Ozzy. We've got to, you know, the American people have to get honest information. It would have been so easy to vet Trump and never, ever let him run for office. Yeah, well, we should have been, been listening so to people easy. like... I don't know how they get that kind of power, but... Yeah, the guy who, uh, who, who authored his, uh, who, you know, who ghost wrote his autobiography 
uh, his name is escaping me, but uh, in fact, he's done this program. But, you know, there were people who were saying back in the day, look out, this guy is nuts. Look out, this guy is a fascist. Look out, this guy is a racist. And, you know, the media said, eh, you know, we're not going to listen to those voices. Well, here we are. We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is uh, by Joy Ann Reed. It's titled The Man Who Sold America. This is from the introduction titled Welcome to Gotham. To truly understand Donald Trump, you need to have lived in New York City in the 1980s and 90s when his businesses and marital escapades were a tabloid staple. Or maybe you just need to have grown up on Batman. Gotham City, which the brooding billionaire Bruce Wayne polices as his vigilante alter ego, is an exaggerated dystopian send-up of old New York. It's filled with over-the-top villains who, like Batman, possess no actual superpowers, but get by on their cleverness, their ostentatious wealth, and their ability to wreak havoc on the urban landscape. Donald Trump seems ripped right out of that comic book supervillain universe. With his cantilever hairstyle, weirdly long signature neckties, bizarre syntax, and penchant for slapping his surname on anything he's connected with, from buildings and golf courses to bottled water board games and, for a time, a sham university that promised anyone could learn to be just like the Donald, Trump and the cast of characters surrounding him could fit right in with Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Lex Luthor. Trump has existed on the outskirts of American celebrity and popular culture for the lifespans of most Americans under the age of 40. He made cameos in movies like Home Alone 2 and on TV shows such as The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He was in the guest chair on The Phil Donahue Show and The Oprah Winfrey Show. And he performed mock fights with World Wrestling Entertainment Chairman Vince McMahon on multiple episodes of WrestleMania. He even pretended to buy WWE's lucrative Monday Night Raw franchise in an elaborate ruse in 2009, which tanked the entertainment company's stock price, prompting Trump to quickly pretend to sell it back for twice the price. Despite his history of housing discrimination against black tenants and his full ad in the 1980s, full-page ad in the 1980s calling for a group of black and brown teenagers to be put to death for, the, for a gang rape they didn't commit, Trump managed to work his way into popular mainstream, mainstream popular culture. Early on, he was a tabloid-friendly rogue and celebrity hanger-on, and later the king of the B-list stars who jockeyed for his approval on Celebrity Apprentice. Had he not signed on to the racist birther conspiracy claiming that America's first black president, Barack Obama, was not born in the United States, and plunged headfirst into the morass of anti-immigrant xenophobia that helped him win the presidency, the old Donald Trump might have carried on. He may have remained a cultural gadfly, that peculiar brand of celebrity whose views on everything from geopolitics to the Oscars are sought out for no particular reason other than that he is famous and quotable. But Donald Trump did become president, and so here we are. As a candidate, Trump offered Republicans the taste of the celebrity status that Ronald Reagan had given them, something normally reserved for Democrats. That's what attracted Sam Nunberg, the 38-year-old political advisor who toiled on Trump's warm-up attempts at a presidential runs and on the real presidential deal until he lost a war with Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and was fired in the summer of 2015. Nunberg says Lewandowski saw to it that old racist posts on his Facebook page surfaced. He later apologized for those posts. And though Nunberg readily says that Trump screwed him, 
He claims he'd vote for him again in 2020 because Trump has delivered on Republican policies and judicial nominations. I knew our campaign wasn't doing well when I went into our restaurant after he announced, Nunberg said. The TV was on CNN and he was on and people were watching. These were people who normally wouldn't give a S word, but they were watching him. Trump wasn't just another politician doing a TV hit. He was an American mogul, an entertainer, Nunberg said. And he wasn't rich from making microchips or selling stocks. It was from building, construction. It was this image of success, of him being rich and he can make you rich. We were the WWE, Fox News version of the Obama campaign in the beginning, and I mean that as a compliment. It was aspirational. It was, we can fight the system. Nunberg was raised on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and nurtured on conservative talk radios, strident support for Israel and suspicion of the Middle East. Nunberg's parents were lawyers, and so he became one too. His father had worked for a law firm that Trump and his father had used for real estate deals. But Nunberg didn't meet Trump in person until he was introduced to him in 2010 by yet another Gotham City character, Roger Stone, the villain with the Richard Nixon tattoo on his back. I wanted to win a national election and thought Trump could win, Nunberg says of his eagerness to sign on. I thought it was cool that Obama went on the late night shows. I thought the John McCain ad showing Obama speaking to millions of people and showing Paris Hilton slamming him as a Hollywood celebrity was the dumbest effing thing I'd ever seen. He all but screamed at the time, you just won him millions of votes. Nunberg thought his party was living in the 1950s. And though Trump was his own version of the madman era, to Nunberg, he was a madman for the 21st century. He and Trump shared a sensibility. He likens to a retired New York City firefighter or cop who mainlines Fox News, plus Rush Limbaugh and Mike Levin on talk radio, and thinks to himself, this country has gone to crap, and we need a guy in the White House who's willing to punch a few holes in the wall. It's Joanne Reed's book, The Man Who Sold America. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. A little uh, more of the, you know, what's in the news right now. This is, I think, tells us a lot, frankly. The number of people who were criminally indicted in the four or eight years of an administration, in the eight years of the Barack Obama administration, the number of administration officials who were criminally indicted was zero. Eight years, no criminal indictments. In the six and a half, seven years, whatever it was, Richard Nixon was in office, he had 76 criminal indictments, most all of them having to do with Watergate. But that was the, that was the peak out of all of history, was 76 criminal indictments in the Nixon administration for people who were mostly engaged in covering up the whole Watergate break-in where Nixon was trying to find out uh, you know, he was trying to break into the into the DNC, and well, it's a it's a whole long story, and we can get Lamar on to talk about it sometime. In fact, he wrote a book, The Hidden History of Watergate, that's brilliant. But anyhow, that was seventy six criminal indictments. Ronald Reagan had twenty six criminal indictments. They were mostly centered around Iran Contra, the scheme that uh, Bill Casey, Reagan's campaign manager, later CIA chief, until he uh, he told his lawyer Milton Gould that he was going to testify before a Senate committee that was investigating Iran-Contra. And the next morning, the morning of the day that Bill Casey was supposed to testify before Congress, and he had told Milton Gould, his lawyer, he was going to blow the whistle on Reagan and Bush, that morning 
He got into the CIA's director's office. He was the director of the CIA. He gets in there, sits down behind the desk, and within the first hour of the day, that afternoon he's supposed to testify, he has a massive seizure, the left parietal lobe of the brain, which is the part that controls speech. They essentially cut out his tongue. And he died about six weeks later from complications from that surgery. Um, but, but that was, you know, there were, there were 26 criminal indictments around that. And who knows, Bill Casey might have been one of them if he had lived long enough. And then the George W. Bush administration had 16 criminal indictments. So here we've got, you know, four Republican administrations. George W. Bush with 16 criminal indictments, Reagan with 26, Richard Nixon with 76, Donald Trump, 215. Once again, total number of criminal indictments in the Barack Obama administration, zero. In the Jimmy Carter administration, one. In the Bill Clinton administration, two. In the Jerry Ford administration, one. You know, you can, you can say, you know, okay, one off, yeah, that's kind of random, but, but uh, Donald, this, this guy's a one-man crime spree. 215 criminal indictments in the Donald Trump administration, and his kids and his shills have the temerity to stand in front of America last night, they're going to do it again tonight, and say, we are the law and order people. We're the ones who support the police. We're the ones who care about the fate and future of, of the rule of law. It's just astonishing. It's like there is almost no... Who has run the Trump campaign without ending up in prison? I mean, he had a campaign manager in Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen goes to jail. He had a campaign manager in Paul Manafort. Michael, Paul Manafort goes to jail. He had a campaign, you know, number two in Rick Gates, who was supposed to become the campaign manager. He goes to prison or gets criminally indicted. I mean, most of these guys are out now because, because of COVID and they're white-collar criminals and whatnot. But this is nuts. This is extremely crazy. So how long is it going to last? How long are they going to be able to pull off this con that, oh, yeah, we're the law and order? You know, it's just like Nixon. Nixon, who had, you know, the 76 criminal indictments, and Trump now with 215. In, in both cases, they're out there saying, I'm with the cops. Well, what cops are they with? Are they with the police who actually care about law and order? Or are they with the police who like to beat up black people? Is that really the limit of what they're doing? It seems to me that that's what's going on. Donald Trump telling police officers, he was at that police chief's association, he said, you know, when you put them in the car, you, you put your hand on their head so they don't bang their head. He says, don't do that. You know, rough them up a little bit. Well, that's not calling for law or order. That's breaking the law by police in a way that is disorderly. This is what we saw with Jacob Blake. You got a cop shooting a guy seven times in the back in front of his three children in the back seat of his car. How is that law and order? How is it law and order when a, when a couple of, of lawyers stand in front of their house and wave guns at peaceful protesters? How is that law and order? Well, the simple answer is it's not. It wasn't with Nixon. Frankly, it wasn't with George W. Bush, although it wasn't so much the police departments in the United States that they were empowering to break the law. It was the CIA in Afghanistan and Iraq and Gitmo. And now you've got Trump. Same thing. These guys are criminals. They support criminals. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. 
and they want to empower the worst and most criminal element that has you know, infiltrated and infected many of our police forces. On this week's Science Revolution, Ethan Manuel with Sierra Club's Land Protection Program is here on Trump greenlighting drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Will the oil companies show up? Adrian Shelley with Public Citizen is dropping by on the methane rule rollback and the Trump administration's continued assault on our climate. Lori Lotus with Climate Power 2020 is excited about Biden and Harris painting a bold climate action plan with clean energy jobs. Plus, in geeky science, there's a new study out. Do plant-based meats improve your heart? Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Tom Harvin here with you. Boy, what a day, huh? Allison in Martinez, California. Hey, Allison, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Hey, Tom. Yeah. Well, I go to bed and wake up the last few days thinking about the post office situation. And I'm realizing that listening to some of the House questioning that their questions are far too narrow. They're focusing on that he has no background in the post office, but not focusing on the experience that he does have. And part of that entails, by the way, paying $38 million in the last five years for employment-related offenses and government contracting violations. Really? Like I said, it's keeping me up at night. So I've been digging into not only XPO Logistics, a little bit other stuff, too. And so now that Congress has passed a $25 billion bill for the post office, who's going to oversee the procurement of replacing the government property that DeJoy trashed? Well, surprise, surprise, XPO Logistics, which is the company that he's the chairman of, and owns 50 million in stock of, not only do they produce the hardware, which is the sorting machines, but also the software, which has proprietary programming titled XPO Smart, which does predictive analytics and customer trend algorithms, but they also do the data hosting, which means they can access the data. And of the 671 sorting machines, to replace those at you know, let's say $300,000 each, which is what I found that they probably cost, that's going to be a $200 million contract that someone gets awarded, not even including the hosting costs. And the other question I have is what happened to the e-waste when they took those machines out? Like, where did the software logistics and data go? Well, another surprise, the VP at XPO owns a waste management conglomerate and XPO specializes in reverse logistics. Well, what does that mean? They're able to harvest the customer data, and does that mean they're eventually going to be able to figure out whether you're Republican or Democratic based on the type of subscriptions, you know, like mail subscriptions you have? I mean, it seems really, really dangerous, and Congress does not seem to be digging into what XPO logistics actually is. Wow. I didn't know half of what you just said, Allison, and I'm pretty well informed. Any well, links that you've got to any of that? You if you'd like to take a look at it. Yeah, please do so. Thank you very much for the call. This is uh, this is mind-boggling. Michael in Bronx, New York. Hey, Michael, what's up? Thanks, sir. Yeah, I almost slipped out. Um, this whole notion of law and order being spewed out by Trump and this, these Republicans and the RNC bunch of nonsense when they are forever foes of the Constitution, forever foes of the judiciary that rightfully rule against them and so many simple issues that you can't tiptoe around. You know, we're all bound by the same laws, the same Constitution that calls for equality. And 
you know, the whole thing is without the Constitution, without the judiciary, there is no law and order, period. And it goes right to the um, shooting of that black man by the cop. First off, I don't even recall if there was any order given by the cop, but just going to shoot him in the back. Any and every right winger that dares to say if the black man done what the cop had said, he would still be alive or not shot. I have two words, and you can um, write this down if you like, Tom. Philando Castillo. Does that name ring a bell? Right. Yeah, the guy who had the wallet in his hand, yeah. He complied. Yeah. He complied with the cops order, and he still got shot dead. So spare me with the nonsense, right-wingers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm with you, Michael. I'm absolutely with you. Thank you for the call. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 